Armin Sinanovich is a political scientist and a scholar of Islam with a passion for studying the comparative politics in Muslim societies. He grew up in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which was then part of Yugoslavia. He has lived in Croatia, Malaysia, and the United States, but before coming to the U.S., he obtained two degrees, one in the Quran and Sunnah studies and the other in political science, from the International Islamic University in Malaysia, and a master's degree in Islamic civilization from the International Institute of Islamic Thought and Civilization in Kuala Lumpur. He is formerly the Director of Research and Academic Programs at the International Institute of Islamic Thought and was an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the U.S. Naval Academy. His research is on transnational Islamic revival, Islamist activism, the politics of Southeast Asia, contemporary Islamic thought, and institutionalization of Islam in the Balkans and Southeast Asia. Currently, though, he's the executive director at the Center for Islam in the Contemporary World, or CICW, at Shenandoah University, where he is also a scholar-in-residence. We sat down to talk about one of CICW's research programs called Islam on the Edges. So stick around for a great conversation with Ermin on the diversity of the Ummah, transnational Muslim identities, and Islamophobia. Good afternoon, Armin. Thanks for joining us with Status. How are you? Uh, good afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me. Doing well, thank you. Just to give our listeners kind of uh, some context, could you tell us a little bit about how you got where you are and what motivated you to direct your career towards CICW? Yeah, sure. Um, how far back do you want me to begin? <laughs> as far back as you'd like. Just what informs your work at CICW? So I think in, in a way, just a brief intellectual journey that I undertook, so that kind of contextualizes where I am right now and why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I did my undergraduate education at the International Islamic University Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur, and I did undergraduate studies in Islamic studies. It's called, uh, the degree is called Islamic Revealed Knowledge. In addition to that, I also did a degree in political science. So I always had this kind of intersecting interest in on the one hand, about intellectual history of Islam, about the intellectual tradition of Islam, and then on the other, more about current contemporary affairs. So my thirst for that was satisfied through political science. And then I did a master's degree in Islamic civilization, also in Malaysia, and then came here to the United States for my PhD in political science at Syracuse University. After my graduate program, I got a job as an assistant professor of political science at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. And then after seven years, I got a job as director of research at another nonprofit. I say another nonprofit compared to the one that I'm at right now called the International Institute of Islamic Thought, the IIIT. And so kind of transitioned from a more kind of academic role into a more administrative role, but it was about administration of academic programs and it was about administration of research and so on. And I found that I actually quite enjoyed what I did. And uh, eventually when the opportunity came in the late 2018, I heard that the new center is going to be created and I participated in its in its creation by developing and suggesting uh, its name with, with a group of people. And we decided to call it Center for Islam in the Contemporary World because we felt that the emphasis should be on a kind of more contemporary experience that Muslims are going through 
And then at the same time, I was also developing this interest that came to be known as Islam on the Edges. And so finally, I ended up in this position as executive director of this center, Center for Islam in the Contemporary World. We are a nonprofit, but we are affiliated with a Shenandoah University in Virginia. That's pretty much how I came to, to, that, to this work that I do. So let's jump into the Islam on the Edges program. One of the goals on the website says that the program examines formations of orthodoxy along the edges with a corollary claim that Islam on the Edges is as orthodox and normative as Islam uh, in any other part of the world. So can you talk about how the Edges might embody this orthodoxy and why this emphasis on comparison and region is important? Yeah, so um, it is still very much a developing uh, program that it's in its infancy here at the center. I called it Islam on the Edges, and I was actually motivated or stimulated by a program that I did at the University of Chicago about seven, eight years ago. Uh, it was called Islam at the Edges. It was just a weekend program. I was invited to be uh, in that program. We were offering some kind of education for public school teachers in Chicago, and this was organized through the University of Chicago as part of their outreach. And they were comparing experiences of Muslims in Bosnia and Herzegovina, where I'm from originally, and Indonesia and Malaysia. And sort of that started my interest. I started looking more and more, and having lived in Malaysia before and coming from Bosnia, I'm always kind of, my mind always works comparatively, right? So I always, in my mind, whenever something happens, compare it with the, um, the kind of directory that I have in my own, in my own mind about experiences that Muslims have. And what I often find is that for a lot of people, both those who are Muslims and those who are not, it seems that for a lot of people, the experience that Muslims have in the Middle East or the Arab world kind of has more kind of normative character. That is like a true Islam. And then Islam that exists in other parts of the world, it kind of like Islam light, if you will. And I personally do not find and haven't found that both in my academic studies as well as in personal experience living as a Muslim in different parts of the world, that it is in any way, shape or form different from, well, I have to qualify that, but that it's less than Islam in the Arab world. And so why am I making that claim? I'm making that claim because when you analyze Islam in, for instance, Malaysia, Indonesia, which is at, you know, the, the edges, so to say, eastern edges of, of what you could call the Muslim world, you will find that they base their claims to Islam in Orthodox Islam. They claim to be Sunni Muslims who follow uh, the mainstream Ash'ari belief and follow one of the four major schools of Sunni jurisprudence, Shafi'i and who, in terms of the practice of Islam, are very similar to many Muslims in many other areas of the world. Now, of course, in different parts of the world, you have different cultures. And there is an Arab culture, there is a Malaysian culture, there is Indonesian culture, even Arab culture in Morocco, Arab culture in Egypt, and Arab culture in Kuwait may be quite different, right? So, But sometimes we tend in our thinking to kind of conflate all of these things. And so that's what sort of led us to start thinking about Islam on the edges. And we are slowly developing this, hopefully, into a research program that is going to kind of invite us to look at these experiences, to understand better the diversity that exists within Islam, but also to understand that there are many ways of practicing Islam 
that are normatively speaking as good and as valid as anywhere else. Right. So in this this comparative work, the center-periphery dichotomy seems like it doesn't fall into as useful a space for Islam on the edges. And could you talk a little bit about how you seek to challenge that distinction or do away with it entirely? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I do not subscribe to the center-periphery type of thing. So you might say, well, how so? You call it Islam on the edges. I call it Islam on the edges primarily to kind of attract attention to it, right? So I think it has nice ring to it when you say Islam on the edges. But it is also, I think, a useful way of thinking about all of these diverse experiences. I'll give you a few examples. So there never was, maybe with the exception of a very early stages in Islamic history, uh, a sort of, so to say, a center. Even if you look at, like, people like to think of for instance, the Abbasids in Baghdad as the centrals. But while this was happening, there was also another very, very strong center taking place in uh, in Andalus, in Andalusia, right? And which of these two Islam was, to, so to say, core Islam or central Islam? I don't think anybody can claim that one to the exclusion of the other is kind of more orthodox or more correct Islam than the other. I think they existed simultaneously. Now, as Islam started spreading, you started started merging all kinds of different intellectual centers, trade centers, economic centers, where a lot of different activity was taking place. And so there was never, I think, the time when there was a core in the periphery there was a time where you have multiple centers, multiple sites where Islamic civilization and culture were thriving through trade, through intellectual activities, through many other, through arts, through music, uh, through many other activities that made Islamic culture, or Muslim culture and civilization possible. And so if we think of the history of Islam as the center and periphery, or the core in the periphery, we are really, first of all, passing a normative judgment, saying that this is like the center and the true kind of Islam, and the periphery is really not so. And number two, we are also discounting the historical evidence, which says that such thing really never existed, that there were always multiple sites and multiple, so to say, centers where, where Islam was uh, practiced and where Muslim culture was developed. Kind of along that same line, how useful do you find it um, when people speak about Islam's plural rather than Islam singular? Do you find it informs the work you do well or um, that there's still something lacking in that framing? So, so um, that, that's another good question. I personally do not like when people use the word Islam's in, in, in that plural sense, I do like, from a phenomenological perspective, to talk about Muslim cultures in plural, uh, the expressions of uh, Muslim being activity, intellectual, otherwise, in, in plural, as opposed to being multiple Islams, because then that would, first of all, suggest that each of these Islams can be defined in a very 
kind of isolated way from other Islams, and that is impossible. Even if we if we say that when people say there are many Islams, um, there is Islam of the Sufis, and there is Islam of the jurists, and there is the Islam of the I don't know of the artists or the architects, and so on and so forth. But they do do have such tremendous overlap among them. You can't extricate one from the other. So there is this almost kind of repository of knowledge that um, constitute what we can call in some way Islam. And then there are multiple expressions of it that that are projected into different intellectual activities, artistic activities, trade activities. So across the spectrum, there would be many different expressions of Islam, many different possibilities for interpreting Islam. But I would not call those different Islams. I would call them different interpretations. At different time and space, Muslims have expressed themselves maybe a little differently. But that doesn't negate the fact that there is certain core, certain essence that they all go back to. And that is what we usually refer to as Islam, that is, that is normally understood by most people to be that religion that right i'm hoping to get into the implications of this for people maybe outside the academy who aren't as familiar to these types of framings so since the u.s began it's it's a so-called war on terror islamophobic policies um, have frequently been analyzed as a form of racism where the figure of the muslim is racialized as uh, quintessentially Arab in some way. So how might the experiences of Muslims uh, in other parts of the world, the totality of Muslim experience, inform the way that we think about Islamophobia? Yeah, that's a very good question. So to start with, you're absolutely right. I think in the minds of many in the United States, they they think uh, that being Muslim and, and, and being Arab is one and the same thing. I have been asked on occasions, are you Arabic or are you Islamic? The question, first of all, it's wrong grammatically speaking, but also it is wrong question to ask because being Muslim does not mean being an Arab. Actually, Arabs constitute a minority of Muslims today and about only 20 to 25 percent at most of all Muslims in the world are Arabs. The, the largest Muslim country in the world in terms of population is Indonesia which is in Southeast Asia, where people look Asian, if you will, for a lack of better description. They're not Arabs, they're not Middle Easterners, they're not Europeans, they're not, you know what I mean? So you have uh, Indonesia as the largest country, and then the second largest country, in the Muslim country in the world, is Pakistan. And um, so the two largest countries in the world are not Arab Muslim countries, are not Arab countries. So that's one thing. How does that tie into Islamophobia? It ties in many different ways. Um, many have argued that Islamophobia is often racialized in the United States, so that people assume that if they hear somebody speaking Arabic language or holding a book that um, that has an Arabic script, um, that immediately they are being suspected of having some kind of nefarious <laughs> intentions and possibly even uh, ties to terrorism. So in that way, it is it is very racialized. It is racialized also in the way that oftentimes people who convert to Islam of any part, of any background or ethnicity are sort of conflated as being Arabs and and um, and Middle Easterners or what have you. I have uh, I have very good friends who had um, converted to Islam, American white 
women who converted to Islam, who after converting to Islam, some of them adopted the practice of wearing hijab. And they have told me that oftentimes people had after that seen them as non-white. In other words, their conversion to Islam had stripped away their whiteness. And, and, and in the minds of the people, when, when they find out they are Muslims, it is almost like there is kind of switch in the mind to, to racialize that category. But I would not simply reduce um, Islamophobia to, you know, racialization of, of Muslims. There is much more going on there. There is also some kind of, I would say, latent anti-Muslim feeling that exists and, 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 and many people in the West for historical and other reasons where Islam was often presented as a kind of the perfect other for the, for the Christian West. So there are many layers to this, to this, to what you've asked. But I would, uh, for the sake of brevity, brevity, I would just keep it at this for now. So I think this kind of bridges nicely into another topic that I wanted to touch on, which is the concept of the Ummah itself, and also maybe the distinction between the West, so to speak, and the Muslim world, or what one would call the Muslim world. So essentially, I'm interested in your thoughts on how the concept of transnational Muslim solidarity functions across historical reality. Can we speak of a functional ummah in addition to an imagined community? Yeah, so I think it is more than an imagined community, you know, to borrow from Benedict Anderson, you know, from whom that famous expression comes. I think on an emotional level, we can definitely talk about the existence of the ummah. I think um, whenever you travel and go in different parts of, you know, the Muslim world, <laughs> to use that expression, which we are now questioning and, and, and interrogating at the same time, you will find very strong connections that people feel to the members of the Ummah. So I remember especially during and immediately after there was war in Bosnia, wherever I would go and meet Muslims from, no matter where they're from, they would always show very deep care for what was going on. You could say that there is a certain shared level on a human level. I think many people, if many who are not Muslim, had shown a lot of care and about what was happening there in terms of ethnic cleansing and genocide and so on. But I think when it comes to the Muslims, there is kind of almost like an additional level of depth, if you will. And, and people had um, contributed by donating money, by even some of them went and... and, and for better or worse, participated by fighting on the Bosnian side in that war. And Daryl Lee had written a fantastic book about, about that, the universal enemy. And uh, others have contributed in many, many other ways. So I think there is really kind of almost tangible feeling on an emotional level. When it comes to other levels of organization, you could point to something like the organization of the Islamic Conference, that um, or co cooperation, as it came to be known, that basically brings all majority Muslim countries together in one international organization. Now, obviously, the question could be asked: To what extent is that effective? Is it really a well-functioning organization? And some, uh, obviously, there've been studies on this on this issue. But again, there is this notion that there is some kind of the ummah that exists, some kind of, of global community. 
Now, some people have gone in a different direction. I think Jamil Aydin had written a book, you know, that there is no such thing as the Muslim world and that the thing like Muslim world only emerged in, I don't know, 19th century or 18th century and so on and so forth. Yeah, maybe that term did emerge in that way. And maybe uh, for um, the reasons that I think are very natural, that people in the past did not have the same kind of understanding of the globe that we have today. You know, uh, they did not have that sense of connection, geographically speaking, how many people could have traveled, you know, very, there were very few even Batutas, you know, there were very few Marco Polos of the world that could have done so. But even then, I think there was always a notion that there is something that connects Muslims. So I think that the notion of the Ummah is real, but if notion of the Ummah is to be understood as some kind of a political unity of the Muslims, some kind of a, um, the caliphate, again, to use that word, then such thing probably doesn't exist. And, and it almost never existed. But there is, and I think this is where you have to take groups like ISIS, I think very seriously on that level, is that they are tapping into something that does exist in the Muslim community. There is some desire for some kind of a unity on some level. There is some desire that that Muslims should organize themselves in ways that are different than the current uh, world of nation states allows. Uh, I think for a lot of Muslims, they feel very confined and constrained by the state borders that have been established. And for that reason, we find that a lot of Muslims want to go outside those boundaries into that kind of transnational uh, identity that you that you are mentioning. But at the same time, we also find that the governments, as well as the international system now, is pushing them back into their national borders because they are, on some level, uncomfortable with the notion of a transnational Muslim. So if you are a, a Moroccan Muslim or an American Muslim or, a British, or English Muslim or French Muslim or Kuwaiti Muslim or Malaysian Muslim, that is fine. But if you want to go and transcend that category, then that becomes seen almost as a threat on an international level. So Muslim transnationalism, and I think Peter Mandeville had a book on that a while ago, I think is a reality on some level, but because there are so many constraints and the world that we live in, and there are so many punitive actions taken against it, uh, this notion had subsided, I would say, in the last, maybe, especially after 9-11. After 9-11, uh, what we had seen is, I think, an organized effort on an international level by governments of the world, including international organizations, to work against this notion of Muslim transnationalism, because it was seen as what led to 9-11. It is seen as something that is enabling groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS and so on. And for that reason, it had to be put back in, in, in the bottle. But I don't think it can, it can last for too long. And whenever an organic expression of something is being bottled up, what you will get is a bastardized version of that sentiment being expressed. And I think that's what, um, what ultimately led to ISIS. Because after 9-11, you had a suppression of Muslim transnationalism, and the only version that could survive in that oppressive environment is the most bastardized, most violent version. And that was what ISIS represented. Uh, obviously, it didn't capture the, the imagination of most of the Muslims at the level of 
them going and joining them and fighting for them. But I think it did capture some of the imagination on an emotional sense that it did indicate that there is a way to transcend the global system that exists today. But of course, what they did was obviously utterly disgusting and, and the violence that they unleashed on the communities in the Middle East was totally unacceptable. Right. So those are pretty much all the questions that I had other than specifics about Islam on the Edges and the research projects. Yeah, maybe I can say a few more things about Islam on the Edges. Um, so maybe to try to explain it in a little bit different when you ask me about the in different way. When you ask me about Islam on the Edges, what I wanted to say is that I would view Muslim experience and, and, and Muslim intellectual history as both polycentric and non-centric in nature. It is non-centric because there isn't just one center. So in that sense, it's not centric. We cannot say here is where the true Islam is or here is where you will find true Islam. It is polycentric because I think that from the early Islamic history, what you will find is that there were multiple centers of Islamic learning, activity, culture, civilization, whatever you want to call it. Uh, whether it be in the Andalus or in North Africa, in areas that are today Morocco or Tunisia, Egypt, uh, later on the Ottomans, in the Malay world, you have uh, important centers of learning and, and trade, starting with Malacca, where you know Islam started spreading in that part of the world, Southeast Asia. You have the Mughals, you have uh, in India obviously a great center of Muslim learning, culture, architecture, music, and so on and so forth, spirituality, obviously, to other types of intellectual traditions. If you look at some of the greatest scholars of one of the most important disciplines in Islamic learning, which is Hadith, you'll find that most of the great scholars of the prophetic traditions came from Central Asia, from uh, Bukhara or Samarkand, which are today in uh, Uzbekistan. And, and, you know, Central Asian Muslim republics, if you will, that used to be under the Soviet Union before they acquired independence after the 1990s. So you'll find that this polycentric nature is really what I think Islam on the Edges is trying to capture. I'll give you a couple more examples. If you look at the expressions, if you look at the borders of a traditional Muslim world, if you want to put it that way, the Western border is the Balkans, right? before the recent migration of Muslims into Europe and, and, and the West. And the eastern border is what you would call Malaysia, Indonesia, and those areas. So what I find interesting is that in these two parts of the world, on the, on the edges, you know, in the Balkans and Indonesia, you have the emergence of two totally independent discourses that are very similar. So in Indonesia, you have something that is called Islam Nusantara, Nusantara is the word that is used in Malay language for South, basically that region of Southeast Asia, the Malay world, if you will, where the Malay language is predominant. So that would be today's areas of Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Brunei, uh, parts of Southern Thailand, parts of Cambodia, and so on. So those areas, right? Parts maybe even of Vietnam. You'll find the emergence of this discourse in the last 10, 20 years of Islam Nusantara. So what is Islam Nusantara? They say this is really the way how Islam was expressed and manifested in, in this part of the world, in Southeast Asia. And the people who developed that concept, they say that uh, Islam Nusantara has few components 
Uh, it is based in Ash'ari Aqidah, it is Shafi'i jurisprudence, and it is Ghazali and Tasawwuf, or the Sufi, you know, spiritual school that belongs, that traces back to Al-Ghazali and then from Al-Ghazali backward. So, so you look at all of that, those are the elements of what you could call Sunni orthodoxy, right? But then they say, on top of that, we have certain uh, cultural norms and expressions that belong to people of Southeast Asia. So this is where you find the variation. So you have certain things that are unique, that are shared among the Muslims. You know, you can find Muslims who are Ash'ari, Shafi, and Ghazalian all over the world, right? Right. Uh, but then you find these, these um, what they call it, the flowery Islam of Southeast Asia, which is very kind of colorful and different from Islam in the Middle East. You know, in the Middle East, you will find that a lot of times people wear monochromatic, even, uh, dress. So for men, it would be like the white, dread, the white galabia, or for the women would be the black dress oftentimes, but it's not, of course, universal. We're talking about traditional dress. In the Malay world, you'll find that people wear very colorful dresses because it corresponds to the environment that they're in. You know, they're in a tropical environment, which has multitude of flowers and vegetation that comes in all different colors. So their dress resembles the nature that reside in. And so in a way, this is living together with the environment, right? But again, even if you look at the Middle East, you'll find there are many areas in the Middle East where the dress is not monochromatic. You know, this came to be seen as, okay, you have black and white, right? And that's it. Those are the two colors. But actually, if you go to Yemen, if you go to Oman, if you go to many other areas, you'll find uh, people wearing colorful dresses too. So you have something that is shared and that goes back to that essence of what constitutes being a Muslim. And then you have all of these different expressions that are cultural, that are influenced by the environment, that are influenced interactions with other religions. Because you see, the Muslim interaction in the Middle East is primarily with the Christians, the Jews, Zoroastrians for a shorter period of time. In Southeast Asia, the interactions that Muslims had primarily were with the Buddhists and the Hindus. These are not your traditional people of the book, as, as are defined in Islamic tradition, right? right. So, so their understandings and their interactions with the other is also different. So this is where you find variation. But who is to say that this is somehow less normative and less orthodox than the, the, the experience that the Muslims had in, uh, in the Middle East, for instance, or North Africa? Likewise, in the Balkans, you'll find that in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a discourse that is called the Islamic tradition of the Bosniaks in Bosnia-Herzegovina. The Bosniaks are the ethnic group that are majority Muslim in not only Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also parts of Croatia and Serbia, Kosovo and Macedonia as well. Uh, but the bulk of the Bosniaks live in Bosnia. And so what is the Islamic tradition of the Bosniaks? And people who wrote about it, they say, well, it is the Maturidi Aqidah, which is another major Sunni school of theology. It is the Hanafi Madhab, which is another major Sunni school of jurisprudence. And it is also spiritual expression through the Sufi orders. So in a way, very similar to what Islam Nusantara claims to be. And to my knowledge, these two had developed independently from each other. So you find that here on the edges, you have claims to orthodoxy 
But at the same time, you also have some sort of indigenization going on. So in addition, they would say that Islamic tradition of the Bosniaks also includes the experiences of the Bosniaks living in that part of Europe, living under secularism, and so on and so forth. And, and that's what gives it, you know, this distinct flavor. But it's in no way less normative than somebody who's lived in the Middle East and has lived with Christians or lived with Jews or lived with other communities. So this is what I found very interesting when we talk about Islam on the edges. This claims to orthodoxy that when you look at it, looks like Islam in any part of the world, but then also claims to kind of local indigenized expressions of Islam that go back to the history that particular people had in that locale. Um, I hope this explains a little bit better this concept of Islam on the edges that uh, that we are trying to develop. Yeah, that was that was wonderful. And where do you see this project developing in the future? Are there any specific directions or uh, events that you'd like to plug? So yeah, so we are uh, actually at the Center for Islam in the Contemporary World of Shenandoah University. We have already developed. Uh, relationship with universities in Malaysia, in Bosnia. We are looking at developing also relations in South Africa. We were actually planning this summer to go and visit some universities in South Africa and try to develop that relationship and to include them in this conversation on, so to say, Islam on the edges. But due to COVID, obviously, we were not able to. So what we are trying to do is to bring people from different countries and along the edges together, including us here in the United States, because we are now on the edge as well, uh, one of the edges here in the United States, and to have that conversation to talk about these kind of different discourses that are developing in different parts of the world that have so much in common and yet are being developed independently. Why is this happening right now? Why is Islam at the same time presented as kind of on the one hand, this universal religion, and on the other, that it also has its own local indigenized expression. What also we are trying to um, look into is that one of the things that I like about Islam on the Edges is I claim that Islam on the Edges is full of uniqueness and innovation. There is a lot of social entrepreneurship taking place along Islam on the edges. There is a lot of uh, intellectual kind of innovation taking place. And I'll give you a few examples. So, for instance, in Indonesia, there is this concept of eco-pesantren. Pesantren is the Indonesian word for a madrasa or an Islamic school, an Islamic boarding school. Uh, usually you have one or more teachers who live in that compound, and then you have students who actually live there, are provided three meals a day, are provided free lodging, and they participate daily in classes. But they don't only, they not only do classes, they also do all kinds of different activities. In the last maybe decade or so, a little bit longer, there's been this notion of eco-pesantren, which is the ecologically oriented madrasa. What is it about? Basically, they are trying to look how, how to integrate ecologically sound principles and environmentally friendly principles into their daily lives within the context of Islamic learning. So they would collect rain, water, and they would plant their own vegetables, and they would rear their own animals for food, and so on and so forth. 
And that will be part of that experience. So it's not just about learning about tradition and scripture and whatnot and memorizing the Quran and Hadith, but it is also about living life that is in tune with nature. And they are justifying that in Islamic principles, in Islamic on Islamic terms. They are saying this is really what Islam teaches us, to live together with nature, uh, because, you know, this old nature is created by God and goes back to basic beliefs in Islam and so on and so forth. I find that extremely interesting concept of ecopesantren, yeah. right? But then there are other, uh, other areas. Maybe you have seen or heard something about Islamic banking and finance that has taken place in the last four or five decades in parts of the Middle East. But Malaysia, for instance, had emerged in the last three or four decades as one of the leading, if not the leading Muslim country in terms of developing Islamic banking and finance. And so you have a lot of that innovation taking place in Malaysia in terms of the relationship between the central bank and Islamic banks, how to integrate Islamic principles into banking principles in the country. Uh, every bank in the country now has Islamic banking and financing. What does that mean? What does that mean from the point of view of Islamic jurisprudence? What does that mean from regulatory point of view, you know, government and central bank? What does it mean from the point of view of political economy? How does that mean that this is integrating itself into the capitalist system and mode of production? To what extent is that compatible with Islamic principles? You know, you have all of these conversations taking place and a lot of people are not even aware of this because their focus is on the Middle East, their focus is on the unfortunate conflicts that are taking place there or on the migrant crisis or the latest dictatorship fashion or something like that or whatever the you know dictators are up to people are not seeing that there is a lot of intellectual and social innovation taking place in places like indonesia and malaysia that are along these edges that we we're talking about that i think are going to in some ways set the stage for many of the new intellectual development in islam for the future and so we're going to take a look into that as well thank you very much for for all the insight. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to uh, to, to hearing from you again. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.